All right, so let's hop in to Revelation. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. Again, Revelation was written by John about 90 to 95 AD. We talked about chapter 1 um, is the presenting, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 and 3 talk about the seven churches um, that existed at that time that Jesus spoke to and gave his word to. And it was the seven complete churches, meaning that Jesus spoke... And what he said was the complete word that he wanted to give to the church. And so we walked through each and every one of those seven churches. One of the um, small groups was debating um, this week, I found out, about what, what does lukewarm actually mean? We talked about the last of the churches, Laodicea, and, and their condemnation was the fact that they were neither hot nor cold, but they were just like lukewarm. And that's, that's the type of feeling that just makes you want to throw things up. And so what is lukewarm? Lukewarm is basically the idea of someone who is saved, but that's about it. Some of you Baptists would understand that as the frozen chosen. Those who sit in the pews every single week and they acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And he is just that, but they don't do anything else with it. They're not on fire. They're not out there preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's not just with your mouth, but that's with your actions. They're not serving. They're not giving. They're not, they're not showing peace, joy, patience, kindness. They're not allowing that love of Jesus Christ to, to impact their lives, so therefore it will impact other people's lives. So that is what it means to be a lukewarm Christian. And I know a lot of us in here going, oh, shoot, I'm lukewarm-ish, Okay. Well, just to encourage you that no one's perfect. Everyone, everyone fails. Everyone falls short. And that's why we need Jesus um, to begin with. But God is calling us to be more than just seat takers. More than just people that go to church on Sunday and do life the other six days. But someone who is actually impacted by what they have in their hearts. And so that's what he was um, um, commenting to the church of Laodicea. Go out and be a light into the world. Go out and be hot. All right, so let's look at Luke, or Luke, um, let's go and look at Revelation chapter 5. Last week we we talked about Revelation chapter 4, and right at chapter 4 is where we believe the rapture, the catching away of the church will happen. And chapter 4 spends the entire chapter talking about the throne of God and God who is sitting on that and the four creatures that surround it and the elders and all that, which we talked about last week. Well, if chapter 4 is um, defined by the throne and defined by God who sits on it, chapter 6 is defined by the scroll and the one who has the power to open it. So let's, or chapter 5, so let's look at chapter 5 and we'll read through it. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. 
So here, here is John. He is in the spirit. He's up in, he's up in heaven. And, he, and he's looking at this scene. And, he, and he's still there at the scene in chapter 4 with the throne and, and God in the middle. And now he sees in the right hand the scroll. And, and in, in today's language, that would be like saying the book. Okay? And the, the scroll had a seal on it. In fact, it had seven seals. And what a seal was is in the ancient times, they would roll up a scroll and then the king would place his signet ring into a bunch of wax and seal the opening so no one could open the scroll and look inside. And if that letter or that parchment or whatever did not get to its destination with the seal still intact, it was a death sentence. It was vitally important to understand that no one was allowed to break the king's seal. In fact, that's why when we look at the crucifixion and and Jesus being placed in the tomb and then placing a seal on the tomb, that's how important it was for that tomb not to be opened by anyone. So here's this scroll. In the right hand of him who sits on the throne, we know that is God. And the right hand signifies authority. And the scroll had seven seals. We hear the voice of a mighty angel proclaiming, Who is worthy to open and break these seals? Now, we've talked before about the number seven, and the number seven indicates completeness. Completeness. Now, I believe that this this scroll actually probably did have seven seals on it, but whatever it looked like, it, it meant it was complete. What was in this was complete. And no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was found who was worthy to open the scroll. That means, in other words, no one in all of creation, everything that was created in Genesis chapter 1, no one was able or found worthy to open this scroll. And did you catch what John's reaction was? He was cut to the chase. He wept. He wept. And then verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, and this is John, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll And it's seven seals. Who's the Lion of Judah? Jesus. The Lion in ancient times was was power, was authority, was judgment. The Lion of Judah. Where was the Messiah supposed to come out of? Judah. The tribe of Judah. This is the root of David. Okay, so he's talking about this is the one that was promised throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah. The Lion of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. Okay, he's not going to triumph. He's not waiting for some battle with Satan to find out if Jesus is actually going to win. The Lion of Judah... 
The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This is the same throne that was described in chapter 4. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. All right, we're getting weird again. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who is the lamb? Jesus. The word slain, when it talks about something being slain, the Jewish people would understand that to mean sacrificed. Something that was sacrificed. Something that was basically destroyed, marred. An image of... Actually, the perfect image is the movie Passion of the Christ. As we see Jesus depicted pretty much how it would have went down. Unrecognizable. His body absolutely destroyed, slain. And so John is seeing an image that he has seen before. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four elder or living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. What do seven horns and seven eyes mean? Okay, again, the word seven means what? Complete. A horn symbolized power. Power. And eyes symbolized knowledge. Standing at the center of the throne was one, a lamb, that looked like it was slain. With complete power, he was omnipotent. Complete knowledge, he was omniscient. The seven eyes, which are the seven spirits, or some of your translations might say the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. The lamb had complete knowledge. Remember when I was a kid, someone, someone told me, do you realize Jesus can see you right now? I looked up, even through the roof. Then I went and tried to hide behind my bed. Can he see me now? Yep. What they didn't tell me is they could also see me. <laughs> and I remember as a kid going, I want, is there any place I can hide from God? And it is amazing how, as humans, we, we often try to hide from God. We see the great story of Jonah. How God said, go, and he's all, nope. And he took off the other way. And he kept running and running. And God kept bringing things into his life. And he kept saying, no, no, no. And finally, God gave Jonah exactly what Jonah was running to. Complete separation from everything. You want to understand what hell is? Hell is complete separation from God. And Jonah was granted a view of what hell probably would be like. Complete isolation. Darkness. Now we know in that story that even God could see Jonah there. 
But a lot of times when we try to run from God, he will actually eventually give us exactly what we want. But it isn't amazing that Jesus, as we saw in the churches, he knows our deeds. He is completely knowing, knows everything. We can't hide from God. And so here's a description of a lamb that was slain, all-powerful, all-knowing. And then he walks over and he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. That's a description of someone, again, talking about planking, just going straight down. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Back in the time, it was the priest's duty to burn incense for the prayers of the people. Here we see that description happening again. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of our praise. Look at the four things that were listed for why he was worthy. He was worthy, number one, because he was slain. He was a willing participant. He sacrificed his own so that we wouldn't have to. And because of that sacrifice, his blood purchased and took care of our debt. He was slain. He purchased But not only did he save us from our debt, he actually made us priests. And we will reign on earth. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks, what the church is going to do, how we're going to reign, how the whole crowns come into play. But God loved us so much that he sent his son to be sacrificed. An innocent lamb led to the slaughter Why? For the purchasing of our debt. The redeeming of us. And not just to save us and then walk away, but to to put new robes on us, to adopt us, so that we could reign with him forever and ever. How crazy is that? And how often do we forget about that? Be honest with yourself. How often do we really stop and just thank Jesus for what he has done for us? We thank him for earthly things, for health, for peace, for for economy. But do we thank him enough for the fact that When we close our eyes for the last time, we will be in heaven forever and ever with him. That we will not face the separation 
that we deserve. That's ultimately the greatest thing I can, I can, I can even imagine. He is worthy. And no one but him could do that. No one was worthy to be slain. No one had the authority to purchase. No one has the authority to make us priests. Then I looked and I heard the voice, verse 11, of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying... Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Seven things listed there. Power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Jesus is worthy of it all. He is worthy of it all in completion. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that's in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. What an incredible scene. Imagine John just sitting there, taking that in. I mean, we thought Avatar was cool in IMAX. Imagine this scene. As John is experiencing worship in its complete majesty. And I like how the worship begins like a wave at a football game. It starts out from within and it just goes out. And before you know it, all of creation is worshiping. All of creation... That themselves could not open the scroll, acknowledged that there was one who could open the scroll, and they fell face down and worshipped. Remember when Jesus was saying, when he was on earth, that if you don't worship me, even these rocks will cry out. The Bible describes creation groaning, waiting for this very moment. Jesus is worthy. It's crazy. And yet, and again, I should preach with a mirror because I'm the biggest culprit. Our worship in our personal life and corporately very rarely represents that. And that's not a slam on, it's just, it's us whether it's the lack of faith in who Jesus really is. But Jesus is so worthy of our worship. The fact that you are saved is so far beyond every other thing in your life. That is so powerful. The gap that God has closed for us And on the flip side, that should burden us. We talk about lukewarm. That should burden us as Christians to go out and preach the good news of Jesus Christ 
So that gap will be closed for other people. It's critical. We aren't going to be worrying about anything else. All these things we worry about will mean nothing. But it breaks my heart to imagine the loved ones in my life that have already passed away. And just wondering, did they know Jesus? And to be able to see people in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families, in our church, that are spiritually dying because they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And not to do anything about it. Not to do a big commercial, but to see kids, whether they're in India, Africa, or right in our own neighborhoods, that are in need. And we choose Happy Meals and Big Macs, I'm speaking from my own experience, over what it would take to keep them alive so someone like Suresh or Mama Sapora can introduce them to Jesus Christ. Jesus is worthy. And then we get, okay, take out your paper. (laughs) And then we get to chapter 6. And I know this encompasses the entire tribulation. But I thought I would put this together so you guys would have just a basic outline. I'm not saying this is inerrant. (laughs) This is this is. My best guess, not guess, but it's my best understanding of what the tribulation is going to be like. And we see the tribulation as a seven-year period, which we'll talk about over the next couple months. We see the rapture indicated there. We see the second coming closing the seven-year. And then we see a series of judgments. And if you flip it over, we've got three sets of divine judgments that the Bible talks about between chapters 6 and 18 in Revelation. Now, the first thing we want to understand is this isn't 21 consecutive judgments. This is seven judgments. And here's how that works. You have the seven sealed judgments, which Jesus is holding in his, in his hand. Within the seventh seal are the seven trumpets. And within the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls or vials, depending on what translation. So it's really seven judges. Does that make sense? Okay. So today we're going to talk about what happens in chapter 6, which is the seven seal judgments. And we'll walk through this. I watched as the Lamb... Verse 1, chapter 6. Open the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder. Okay, again, whenever you hear thunder or, or trump, it's authority. Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And another horse came out and 
a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. The lamb opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts beasts of the earth. Okay, so let's stop there with the first four here. Um, Oftentimes referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So Notre Dame fans, that brings on a special meaning for you. Um, So the four horses of the apocalypse... Here's how that probably looked. Number one, Jesus, the lamb, is opening the seal. I don't know how that looks. I don't know how that looks. I don't know if he's got one and he's peeking. I don't know how that works. And we see the seal, um, the actual um, scroll has writing on both sides, which indicates that it's full. That's symbolically what that means. And so he opens the first seal, the first judgment, and it's a white horse. And all the horses um, represent power, represent um, authority. A king would often ride in on a horse. A white horse often indicated diplomacy. We see a bow without arrows mentioned that could mean diplomacy as well. Many believe, many theologians believe that the rider on this white horse was the Antichrist. And we will get to who the Antichrist is in later weeks. But apparently the first judgment is a short piece through diplomacy. The Antichrist is revealed but not in control. One other thing, um, as the four creatures one at a time are saying come, they're not telling John to keep coming up like this to look. They're t- Every time they say come, another horse appears. So apparently they're beckoning this judgment to come forth. Okay, so the first one is the white horse. The second one is a red horse. The the red horse often um, would represent war, or the color red would often represent war and bloodshed. The black horse, black would often represent famine, hunger, starvation. In fact, mourning back in the day, people would put get black sackcloth. And they would wear that and they would mourn and they would fast. And so black often represented fasting and famine. And then the pale horse, pale often refers to death. And so let's go back through each one of them. One is, again, we're going through a lot of symbolism and no one knows exactly what these represent. But these are the best guesses that we've put together from theologians. So let's go back and look. At that first one. Okay, verse 2. I looked and there before me was a white horse, a rider. Uh, its rider held a bow and he was given a crown. So he was given authority. And we know biblically that God gives authority to rulers. And he rode out 
as a conqueror bent on conquest. We understand that the Antichrist, once the restrainers, we talked about last week, once the spirit is removed and the church is removed, the Antichrist will eventually become known. And he will take authority and he will rule the world. Don't go on a wild search to try to figure out who the Antichrist is. Republicans think it's a Democrat. Democrats think it's a Republican. We all used to think it was a Russian, maybe. No, don't, don't go on those wild goose chases trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. Some believe, some theologians believe that, that, that there's an Antichrist for every generation that could rise up. But we see with this white horse an indication symbolically that it looks like a period of diplomacy where a ruler will take control. The red horse. Its rider was given the power to take peace from earth and to make people kill each other. So the reason why another reason indicated that we think the first judgment that there is going to be some kind of peace is symbolically using, using the bow without the arrows. Um, the other one is it indicates that there is peace before this second. And there's not peace in the world right now. In fact, I think over the last three and a half thousand years, there's been recorded less than 200 years of peace in our world. Um, it's not a common thing in our world. Um, the writer was given power uh, to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Verse 5, the third seal. I heard um, the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales um, in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice uh, among the four living creatures saying, and, and depending on what translation you have, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Okay, what this most likely represents is worldwide famine. Um, and the reason why it uses these two, the two pounds of wheat and then the barley, is those are actually one-eighth of what those things could actually buy. Those are actually one-eighth the purchasing power of what those would actually buy. And so many believe that's an indication that there, there is going to be a, either a food shortage or there's going to be an issue to where um, you will have one-eighth the supply of food or the purchasing power, whatever that is. But all indications are that there will be a worldwide famine, which typically follows a worldwide war anyway. Pale horse, death in Hades. Okay. And so as we see the fourth rider, he brings with him death, and followed by that is Hades. Um, obviously, we will, we will see with, with famine, with war, and with all the things that are listed in the first three, um, there is going to be a lot of death and a lot of um, loss of life. And so let me, let me pause for a second. Let's look at verse 7. Verse 8, I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades followed close behind him. They were given the power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Pause for a second there. How many people are on the earth today? Approximately? About six billion-ish? Can you imagine... 
one-fourth of humanity gone by the end of the fourth seal? How big a war is that? How big a famine is that? One-fourth of all humanity. Do me a favor. If you were born in January, February, or March, stand up. Sorry. (laughs) Could you imagine that in this room to lose one-fourth of our people here? Imagine what that will be like. One-fourth of all humanity. Let's keep going. Keep losing my place. Apologize. Okay, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So we take a little pause in heaven up here. We've got the four seals, the four, the four judgments that go out upon the earth. And then we get a group of people calling out to God, how long until our blood is avenged? Who is that? Those martyred for the name of Jesus Christ. But here's what you need to understand. What ushers in the tribulation? The removal of the church. These would be tribulational saints. Those who have come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ during the tribulation and that were martyred because of that. Were martyred because of the name of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until the full completion of all those who would die in the name of Jesus Christ during the tribulation would come to its completion. And then we see that um, they were given what? A white robe. Okay? Which indicates that they, they have been saved. Verse 12, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. Um, the, whole, the whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the earth or the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called out to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? So we see in the fifth, we see the martyrs for God, unparalleled religious persecution, the great earthquake um, and cosmic disturbances and a, and a large prayer meeting, which we'll get to at, at a different time. So we see religious persecution. We've got the four, the four seal judge or the four um, seal judgments represented by the horses. 
you've got famine, you've got war, you've got um, the Antichrist um, rising to power. Then you've got the fifth. You've got religious persecution, those who are accepting Christ. And we'll get to this at a later time. Those who would not accept the mark of the beast are being martyred left and right for their belief. And then we get to this cosmic, this great earthquake Now, it's described that all the mountains and the islands were moved from their place. That is a large earthquake. That is is something that is cataclysmic. This piece of the tribulation is horrific. But it's just getting started. It's just getting started. The tribulation is not a place where people want to be. What does it mean that the the moon turns red? Well, if we understand what an earthquake and and what, um, um, I'm getting into science, but the tectonic shifts and all that kind of stuff and the volcanoes erupting and all that, um, everything, the moon, it all turns red. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden the moon turns into blood or anything like that. And then what it's talking about, stars falling to the earth, because many of us go, well, that would end it all right there. Um, it's not talking about literal stars. Okay, the word, the word that's used there is representative of, 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 of things falling to the earth. So if we have volcanic eruptions, if we have those things, and we have the rocks, whether they're uh, whatever it is coming down, it, it looks as if stars are falling to the earth. Whether that's meteors or whatever it would be, that is what is described there. It's not talking about a big old star coming in and rubbing up against, against the earth. But again, this is a a bad place to be, according to what is described here in chapter 6. So in chapter 6, we have the the six um, seal judgments. The seventh one is actually opened at a a later time. We get a little break next week, and we talk about um, 144,000 and the great multitude in white robes. But how many of you honestly can imagine what it would be like to see a fourth of humanity gone. And then to see more and more die. Can you imagine the confusion that's on the earth during the tribulation? Can you imagine the anger? Can you imagine the scapegoating? It's going to be a bad time. And so I'm hoping that this will at least give you a little bit of help. I know it's incredibly confusing, and I'll try to answer some questions if at all possible. But I'm going to be honest with you. There are things in Revelation that, and when I say theologians believe this, that's because there's other theologians that it's not 100% unanimous on what these actually mean. They're symbolic. Um, and again, as if you were here the first week and we talked about John trying to explain what he's seeing in a language that didn't even have words for these things. How would you describe a nuclear war? How would you describe an airplane or a helicopter? And so we'll deal with some of these things as we go through Revelation. Um, But what we do know is that the tribulation is not a fun place. The tribulation is not a fun place. And it's described... As a time where God's wrath and judgment finally hits the earth. It finally hits the earth. And a just God has to do that. It's not that God wants to do that. It's not that he just, it's going to come 
God has been patient. He's been patient. But there will be a time, and we see it starting in chapter 6. And so I just want to warn you, as we get from chapter 6 and we start going through all the way to 18, there's going to be moments where you go, I can't fathom what that would be like. And it's tough. So let's go ahead and take some questions. And, I, and there's a good chance I confused um, the bejeebers out of some people. Um, that's not my goal. But, and then we're going to... Whoa. I'm connected. Oh, oh, it's just my clothes. All right. Any questions out there or anything? And I'll try to hit it here. If it's for next week, um, forgive me if I tell you we'll hit, hit that in the coming weeks. Yes, sir. Uh, what's, the, what's the best guess on don't damage the oil and the wine? Oh, good, good, good. Okay, so we, we look at that, um, the third horse, and it, and it mentions don't damage the oil and the wine. The best guess on that, it's not um, necessarily literal oil that we're fighting over in these days. Um, oil and wine were the luxuries of the days um, back, back, back in the day. And so it seems to indicate that people um, will be rationing food and it'll be hard to get food, but for whatever reason, it'll be very easy to get the stuff that you don't really need. It'll be very easy to get wine, it'll be, or wine, liquor, alcohol, whatever that is. It'll be very easy to get oil. And again, we're not talking about Exxon oil. We're talking about, about oil, cosmetics, that type of stuff. So that seems, um, and I had to look that up, and from all indications and everywhere I read, that sort of seems what, what it is. I have a question about the seals and time frame. So yes. are each seals a certain time frame or they're all happening at the same time? They are, they are in succession, okay. okay? But we don't know how long each one is. So I, um, we do know within range that it, most of them are going to happen during the first three and a half years. And we'll get to that a little bit later as we start to unpack this timeline. But most of them will happen towards the beginning because the seventh seal that's unpacked is filled with the, the trumpets. And the trumpets are worse than the first six judgments. And then in the seventh trumpet, we get the seven bowl judgments. Whore awful. <laughs> so... Yeah, so they're, they're in succession, but um, we don't know if it's going to be like boom, boom, way to boom. Yep. Is there a thousand-year span of some time that I'm missing here somewhere? Or was that before or after this time frame? Like the reign of some... Okay, some, you're, yes. Yeah. Okay, there's a thousand-year millennium, and that is found, um, I believe, it's either in chapter 19 or 20. I think it's 20, first six verses. Um, it talks about a thousand-year reign, which people call the millennium, and this will be after the tribulation. So this will be, you'll have the rapture, you'll have the seven years, and then you'll have the thousand-year reign where Satan is bound for a thousand years. Um, we'll talk about later who actually is in these thousand years, what the role of the church is during these thousand years, what the role of the tribulational saints are during these thousand years. Okay, And then the great white throne judgment concludes that. Yep, way in the back. Chris, I know that you don't uh, try to pinpoint time frames here, and I know that's not where we're here. I didn't know if you had uh, listened to uh, Pastor Hagee talk about the four blood moons um, because it ties into this pretty interestingly. But um, the four blood moons is, was a sermon that he did down in San Antonio recently, and it was about how the, God shows us signs and 
wonders through the universe and for all humankind to see. And basically what he was saying is that I think over the course of history, there's been two uh, blood moons um, over the over span of 2,000 years. And what he was saying is that God revealed to him that the next two are going to happen next year. The first one's going to happen on the Jewish Passover, which I believe is April 15th. And then the second one is going to happen on the Jewish Sukkot next year also. And again, I know that we're not nailing down time frames at all, but I didn't know what your take was on that because he was saying that probably the tribulation period will probably start the year after that and probably 2015. Um, I... I'm going to be honest with you. I have not heard that sermon, um, but um, we are littered with the the prophetic utterances of it's going to happen here, it's going to happen there, it's going to happen this month or that month. Um, typically, it happens at the end of the century. There's a big, oh, the end of the world is going to happen at the end of the century, or it's going to... Um, I believe biblically that... Um, no one knows the actual day. And oftentimes when I actually hear a day, it gives me confidence that it probably won't be that day. Um, but I, I'm straight honest, I haven't heard the basis of his message on, on, on where he's coming from on that. But I, from what I understand, no one's going to know the day or the hour um, when it happens. The Bible talks about um, even the Son of Man doesn't know the day or the hour when this happens. And I think that's a reference to Jesus um, on earth because in heaven he's got his, he, he's got his full God bought on. And so he, he would actually would be omnipotent and omniscient and know when the day and the hour would be. But so I, I, I would say, I haven't heard it, but I would say probably not then. Um, but again, no, no one knows the day and the hour. So, but I, I, I can't really speak to it because I haven't, I haven't heard the message. Um, but any, who'd you say it was by? John Hagee? Okay. I will, I will look that up. Okay. Um, I have a question. In verse 16, it refers to him who sits on the throne, but him is not capitalized. Um, I'm assuming then, I mean, normally if it was referring to God, then it would be capital. All right, verse, you said 16? Yes. It's re- it's in another verse, too. I just couldn't find it. Verse 5. Right, so yeah. just wondered about that. Yeah. Um, to be honest, don't know. Okay. <laughs> don't know why that would be. Um, it is it is a reference to God. Um, why Zondervan didn't capitalize that, I don't know. And, I'll, but, and you can ask my wife. I am the worst person to tell you why things are capitalized and where commas go and periods. So um, I will ask her, <laughs> and then I'll, I'll actually look at that. But um, but it, it is God on. Yep. Just just an alternate take on the on on the on the blood red moon. Oh, okay. If you've if you've ever seen a lunar eclipse, mm-hmm. you know that the moon turns a very deep orange color, mm-hmm. which could be which could be under certain circumstances perceived as red. Yeah, uh, you know, so it could be some sort of a massive occlusion of that prevents sunlight from reaching the moon. Mm-hmm. So you know, it could be it, it, there. There could be you know something physical happening that would cause that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, and whether it's a, an eclipse or whatever the obstruction is, it could be ash from volcano. It could be the. Um, but we do know it's a cosmic disturbance. It's going to make the uh, the balloon or the balloon. <laughs> The moon that looks like the balloon, red, and um, and all that. But yeah, we don't necessarily know why. And, and John, probably looking at it, didn't quite know why it was red either. 
And we got time for one more question, and then we will close. Um, um, I have a question. Hey. As someone that's a, a new believer that's um, trying to walk the walk and talk the mm-hmm. talk, I'm, I keep hearing judgment. My grandmother told me that there would be a judgment for everyone. He's going to open the book of life, and everyone will be judged according to um, their deeds and whether or not you had a relationship. Mm-hmm. T- tonight you're saying there's there's other type of judgments in the 144. I'm confused. I'm, right. When will me as just a Christian be judged if I'm not a martyr or... I wasn't born when the apostles were. Do you understand? Yeah, absolutely understand. Okay, so I guess we'll differentiate between judgments and then the final judgment of our of our sins. Okay, and so as Christians, there are there are two judgments that the Bible refers to, and I'm preempting a little bit, but I'm going to do that try to lessen the confusion. The Bible talks of a great white throne judgment which all who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, those non-believers, will appear before. This is a judgment, much like a courtroom that was dealing with a penalty phase. Whoever stands in front of the great white throne judgment is already guilty, and they're basically receiving the penalty for that. Okay? They have not been justified in front of God, and that will happen at the end of the thousand-year reign. There is another judgment that the Bible talks about, the Bema Seat judgment. And this is where those who have turned their life over to Christ will be judged for what they did in the body, or basically as a Christian. This is where we get the, the whole idea of um, you will receive a, a, a martyr's crown if that happened to you, or you'll receive the crown of life or the crown of the, whatever. And this judgment is not a condemning judge. This is not a penalty phase because the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You, your sins were removed as far as east is from west. There is nothing that can take you out of God's hand. And so those who stand in front of the Bema Seat are not awaiting a penalty phase. They're awaiting more what we would see in the Olympic Games. This is a rewards phase. That's what the Olympics are. The final judge in the ancient Olympics sat on what they called the Bema Seat, and the winner of the race would be given sort of the wreath crown. Okay, and so the Bible talks about we're not running a race to receive something that will fade away, but we're running for um, the crowns that Jesus will bestow us. So the one, so Christians, your penalty has already been taken care of. Okay, when you breathe your last breath and when you close your eye for the last time, you will breathe your first and you will open your eyes and you will see Jesus Christ. Okay, and at the beam of seat judgment, which we will get to in future weeks, you will be rewarded for what you have done in the body. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. And Heavenly Father, I just want to take this moment and just slow down and and thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for your love and grace upon a sinful world. Thank you that even though we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Thank you for the Lamb. He is worthy. 
of everything we have, of everything we could give. He is worthy of the complete everything. Riches, honor, wisdom, wealth, whatever it is, whatever we have to give, He is worthy of it. Even the crowns that we will receive from Him, He is worthy of those as well. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray as believers in this room that we won't be frozen, but that we will be moving, as Paul describes, running a race with everything we have, living a life worthy of the call. Heavenly Father, give us that wisdom to see things the way you see them, to see Jesus the way you see him, to see our path the way you see it. Heavenly Father, give us the courage as believers here to live that life worthy of the call. To love you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And to love our neighbors, whether locally, regionally, or worldwide, in the same way. Heavenly Father, I pray that as a group of believers here that we come here and we learn and we thank you for your word, which is so rich. But give us the wisdom to not just listen to it and deceive ourselves, but actually do what it says. To go. Heavenly Father, I, I, I see the tribulation and... I, and Thank you that you have spared us of the wrath. And Heavenly Father, give us the burden to tell each and every person that you have placed in our life the good news of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.